0: Welcome back to the third episode of Autism with a Pinch of Salt. In today's episode we have a conversation with Abby Lloyd who is a teacher and parent to an autistic girl. She's written a guidebook in collaboration with her daughter called ASD in Girls. It's available to buy on eBay and if you buy it with the intention of handing in to a school, Abby will send you another copy for free. I really enjoyed this conversation. We cover a lot of interesting topics that are also covered in her guidebook. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did recording it. Thank you so much for coming on today, Abby. It's great to chat with you. Sort of in person, over Zoom as close as we can <laughs> I know, yeah. get. as <laughs> close as <laughs> we're ever going to get. That's it. So I'd like to discuss your book a little bit today, but first, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey with your daughter so far?
1: Yeah, of course. So before I had my children, I was a primary teacher and I always had an interest in children with special needs. I grew up with three siblings who were dyslexic, so they had various struggles through school and they had good teachers and bad teachers and I decided quite early on that I was going to be a teacher and I was going to be a teacher who worked with children with special needs. So um, that was always a big interest of mine anyway. Um, In my first job I ended up with a couple of boys who other teachers had found quite challenging and I found absolutely fascinating and one of them had such a bad year the year before he came to me that he actually wasn't really able to take part in the classroom he spent a lot of his time either running out or under a desk or he just really didn't seem to be coping very well um and His parents eventually, during the summer holidays, had got a diagnosis of ASD, which I didn't know a huge amount about at the time. So I did a lot of reading over that summer as to how I could help this little boy. And we had a really great year together. It took quite a long time to build trust with him. But actually, he ended up repeating the year in my class so that he could then re engage and get back into school. And it was a really rewarding experience. So it was always something that was an interest, really. Then ended up having my first child, not having any clue what I was doing as most first-time loves. My parents emigrated to New Zealand, so I didn't have my mum to say, is this normal? I don't know what's going on here. But definitely noticed that she cried a lot more than all the other babies in the antenatal group, and she um, (laughs) was quite a fractious baby. She was so wanted, I'd always wanted to be a mummy, and I was so desperate to have this baby and I just wanted to pick her up and cuddle her all the time and soon got the message that she wasn't really up for that (laughs) and uh, as soon as she could push away then she would do it so um, I guess always had a sense that she maybe wasn't an easy baby but equally at the time she was my first baby and I just thought maybe that's how her little personality was going to be as she grew older We started to see more and more things that were unusual or a bit different. And our family just described her as really shy and clingy. Like they said that she was really overly attached to me and that she was just very shy. She didn't like big groups of people. She didn't really like being around lots of people. If We had lots of family over, then she would retreat. We joked that she learned to walk when she was nine months old so she could run away. (laughs) So yeah, she was just... Uh, just what everyone described you as shy that's all they said and whenever I said all oh, right you know what I just think it's something a bit more than that I would just get oh no she's just shy so my father-in-law is also a little bit quirky he's very highly intelligent he has a PhD he doesn't like being touched and that's really well known in the family you No know one he doesn't hug he'll yeah. shake hands but he's quite uncomfortable with physical contact and Amy's exactly the same so you'd get these kind of comments "Oh, she's just shy she's just like her granddad yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking yeah she's just like her granddad <laughs> I will we agree on this point but yeah so as time went on obviously she then needed to start going to I tried to go back to work she needed to go into nursery childcare whatever and um more and more differences started to come out. She didn't cope at all. She would scream and hammer on the door at preschool. She didn't want to go in. She um, had a funny habit of taking off her knickers at preschool and hiding them behind the toilet. So I think they were uncomfortable. She didn't like the feeling of them and she just didn't talk to anybody. So um, once we got to preschool, Then other people started listening and saying that they agreed that there was a difference there with her and that they also had concerns. The fact that she didn't talk, obviously, was quite a big red flag. So we'd already been to the GP about her lack of sleep and other things, but the preschool were the ones that really kind of took it and ran with it. So... They supported um, a referral to community, community paediatrics and were really great with us. But with the waiting list the way they are, by the time we finally got that appointment, we'd moved into primary school and the preschool had helped us appeal to get into a tiny village school where there were only 11 in her class. So she had this really nurturing environment. The teaching system could spend as much time as she needed to get her in in the mornings, and so when the school filled in all the forms, they said that there wasn't a problem in the school environment, yeah. and they were they weren't wrong in a way to do that. They weren't having a problem with her in the school environment, but she was in a class of eleven with no one else who needed the teaching assistant so they could provide the one-to-one support. So it it was a difficult thing. So even though the paediatrician could see that we had anxiety and we had mutism and everything else, they weren't prepared to pursue a diagnosis of ASD until she was showing signs in more than just at home. So we were left a bit frustrated by that. I mean, they gave us lots of advice that was useful at the time because i was getting to the point where i was thinking right well she's just naughty then she's refusing to do things because she's naughty so then i was getting really strict and um, trying to force her to do things because i decided maybe she was just a willful child because no one seemed to be taking it seriously and we did have a really good chat with the pediatrician who just said you know it's not autism but she's obviously maybe anxious so don't push her to do things so we had some good advice from them but It was a bit of a frustrating experience. There was no explanation for why she might choose to be mute. There was no support, really, or anything like that. So it was quite frustrating. So we then spent the whole of primary school basically treating the symptoms of her autism, So. constant stomach aches headaches feeling sick all the time not being able to eat certain things just huge amounts of that not sleeping going over and over and over things in her head not being able to move on from things catastrophizing all the time about every little thing that might go wrong basically that was what primary school was and it was only finally in year six where she had the same teacher again as she'd had in year two where she was starting to really quite obviously tick and she couldn't control it anymore and there was too much where she was thinking about moving to secondary school that finally the school agreed to support us going back for another look so they started that process and obviously didn't matter that we'd been there before and we had to start all over again from the bottom and they said they prioritise us because she was moving to secondary school but they didn't and so in the end she'd been seeing um, a psychologist for support with her anxieties and she managed to persuade our private healthcare that it would be cheaper for them to rule out autism than to rule in all of the anxiety disorders that she might like them to investigate yep, so no we, we got a private assessment in July of year six and um, finally she got seen and this time I took loads of evidence I was told when she was six that she couldn't be autistic because she played with toys so I'd done lots more reading by then so I took lots of photos of her playing in rows repeatedly the same game for year after year after year after year so I took a lot more evidence with me this time but actually I, I didn't need to they spent two hours with Amy and they were quite decisive at the end of it that the the diagnosis was correct so it was a very long journey but after that things became so much easier because the school stopped just saying she was quiet well behaved shy and we started to get some proper understanding then and as soon as we went to secondary school they had an excellent Senko who had a real interest in autism in girls and so that was just amazing everything was put into place anytime we had a little blip they were there to help so we had a really really positive experience when we moved in secondary school and I think that's why she's been really happy and successful most of the time at secondary school is that they have really listened and the diagnosis really made a big difference for us
0: yeah that's and-
1: yeah definitely Um, The right support
0: when you get the right support in place the difference it can make
1: yeah I think a lot of parents just experience huge frustration and like partly I understand it because I'm on both sides I'm a teacher and a parent and so I understand teachers are really busy you've got 30 kids plus to be thinking about you don't always see the subtleties because you're dealing with them as a big group and you don't have as much time one-to-one as you would like to get to know those children so I do understand but as a parent it's just so frustrating when you just keep being told oh they're just quiet or they're just shy and like these girls with autism and some boys with the same presentation it's easy to ignore them because they are so beautifully behaved like they would rather die than get in trouble (laughs) so they literally will just look at you and do everything you tell them to like I'm sure they're perfect students Mm -hmm. but they're just sitting there in terror and it's awful
0: (laughs) yeah it's sort of looked over because they're not drawing attention yeah
1: absolutely definitely and um you know yeah a typical male presentation and they're loud and they're active and they're defiant or they're violent or they're and those are the kids that are getting the diagnosis quickly because they're causing problems in class but these quiet passive presentations of asd they're just they just get swallowed up in a big classroom it's very hard oh absolutely
0: were you ever offered any support um, from speech and language therapy at all
1: during during the sort of years that you're waiting for,
0: for diagnosis i look back now
1: i look back now and think this is crazy i had a child who didn't speak she didn't say sentences till she was three and then she went all the way through to year two until she actually spoke to her teacher. And I look back now and think what why was there no support? What like what why did I even not push for what I just don't even know. <laughs> I look back now and think it's completely bonkers really really bonkers. I've got um, a niece who lives in New Zealand also selected mute, and the support that she got put in there straight away. As soon as they picked up that she had mutism, she was seen by lots of professionals. She has therapy in school. It's completely different. And Mm -hmm. I look back now and think, I don't know why I didn't realise at the time, but I think even as a teacher, I just trusted what they were telling me. And they were telling me she was fine. She was learning. She was making progress. And I think you just accept it, which is terrible now when I look back. But... Well I
0: think as well though some some parents as well maybe don't understand what the different job roles are and who does what and why and like you're saying at what point you would maybe make a referral especially when you're being told from one professional that she's fine as a parent you know you take on what you're what you're being told so yeah Yeah. it's amazing what hindsight can do
1: yeah definitely (laughs) I talk to other parents now who are in the position I was in back then. And I'm like, right, go and ask. Keep going back to the doctor. Keep asking. And I think, oh, you know, if only I'd have known someone back then who just said to me, no, that's not right. You know, children, even if they're shy, should be able to talk to their teacher after a little while. So, yeah, yeah, no, no support for speech and language back then. But, you know, you know, the services are all so massively overloaded, aren't they? Everybody's so overworked. Absolutely especially
0: now as well with Covid and everybody I think all the services are really trying to they're everywhere is playing catch-up now isn't it? Yeah absolutely. So you wrote a guidebook for teachers ASD and girls and I read it and it's brilliant I really enjoyed it I read it in one sitting it was really <laughs> good so what drove you to write the book and do you think that it's been welcomed by education staff that you've that have maybe been
1: given it? So we started right, we started writing a presentation. It was never going to be a book. It was just, Amy kept coming home from school and saying, Oh, you know, there are just some teachers, mommy, and I just I don't think they understand. I don't think they really get it. And I said to her, well, I'm sure you're right, because <laughs> I did teacher training for four years. I got one day on special needs. And I'm not even sure really that much of autism was covered and certainly not the different presentations and any kind of detail whatsoever. So, um, yeah, so I, I said to her, I was absolutely sure she was right, that the teachers didn't have any knowledge. So I approached the school and asked if it would be all right for Amy and I to write a presentation for the teachers And preferably for me to come and speak to the teachers, because I thought maybe if I made it really personal, it would be more likely for them to take in what I was saying than just an outside speaker on a busy inset day. So um, we'd started writing that. And we decided to set it as a summer holiday project. (laughs) So we sat down over the summer holidays and we uh, wrote this presentation. What we then found was really tricky was that actually to get all the staff together or even a group of staff together was really challenging because they plan their training and their twilight sessions and their inset days really, really far advanced. So we were due to go in and present just about the time that COVID hit all the schools. So we had our PowerPoint all prepared. We were ready to go into the school. We had a date and then obviously everything in education went horribly wrong (laughs) Um, and the world went mad. So we were left with this presentation but the schools were just about managing to cope with just what was going on so there was no way that anyone was open to any kind of training so we'd kind of waited we thought well we'll just go in because at the time we thought COVID would just be a couple of months thing, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. uh, we had no idea what was coming at us. So the plan was that we would just wait until September and we'd book in and we'd go in at the beginning of the school year and that would be a great time. But obviously it soon became very apparent that, that things were not going to go that way. And then the more mums I was speaking to in my autism networks, the more people were saying, you know, actually a lot of their girls were very, very happy at home. And they were seeing the best learning they'd ever seen because all the anxiety was taken out of it. And we were certainly finding that, that the ticks, everything was much improved because she was able to mute herself if she had to tick. And therefore all the anxiety about people hearing you tick was gone. You could tick as much as you wanted to. And then she could actually concentrate and her test scores were going up and everything was amazing. And we were hearing the same from lots of our other friends. And I realized that actually, there was going to be a massive problem for these girls when they did go back to school that they were going to find it especially challenging going back to what they'd had before. So we decided we didn't have time to wait. That's where the idea of the guidebook came from. So we basically took the presentation that we'd written and then I wrote out messages to people on social media saying, I'm going to write this as a guidebook because I don't think there's time. I think teachers need to know now, ready for the end of COVID and isolations and lockdowns, there's going to be a massive problem with these kids. And there's going to be children who haven't been identified before who suddenly cannot mask anymore. And it's going to be really obvious. And people started sending me ideas they wanted to put into the book. And then they were sharing and it was coming in and there were messages coming in from all over the place, from mums and their daughters and adult females, just sending in everything they wished that their teachers had known. And it became this massive, (laughs) massive amount of information, but it was so brilliant and so fascinating and really, really great. And for Amy to see other girls saying the same things that she was saying was really empowering for her. And it was just a really great experience that we had. So then sat down and sorted it all out and put it into sections Uh, But the idea was that, just as you said, you read it in one sitting, that is what I wanted. So thanks. (laughs) (laughs) it, It did the trick. So the idea was, I know that there is so much information and literature and training, like so much is thrown at teachers. It's just a bombardment of information and it's too much and people just screen out. So I wanted it to be something that looked small, achievable, big bullet points, so that a busy teacher could just pick it up scan it take what was of interest of them and actually make use of it so that is the history behind it really so we advertised it just locally to start with and once zoom meetings had started and become quite a popular thing I started talking at parent groups over zoom and to get the word out about the book and um, decided that I wasn't going to wait to publish it properly I just wanted it out as soon as possible in as many schools as I could so I just printed 400 copies and then I sold them so that it would cover the cost of making the books and offered a deal that if you pay if you bought one book I'd give you a book free if you could tell me that it was going into the school so started spreading the word that way. So my idea was to send them out to all the schools in the country, and then thought no, because the original idea was to go and present in the schools, make it personal. So I thought actually, if a parent is to take that book into a school, that would be more personal than me as a random stranger posting them to random schools. So yeah, so the, it's that's still the case. The book's now on eBay as well to try and get it further out, but still, anyone who buys a book can get a free one's place in the school. So they're now in, I think the last count was about 380 schools and Mm organisations just from eBay and Facebook. Facebook is a genius invention, (laughs) as you know. The feedback I've got has been tricky because I still haven't actually got into a school because we're still in COVID lockdown. And even though I'm a teacher, it doesn't matter. Visitors are not being allowed in yet. But I'm hoping this year with restrictions being lifted, I can actually now go and actually speak in person in schools. But it has been quite tricky to get in I think they have quite restricted timings for staff training even though I'm offering it for free and everything else actually time is so tight in schools I think it's really hard I'm not not always sure how prioritized it is so yeah that's not been as easy as I hoped it would be but certainly the feedback from parents has been really massive that you know they've given it to the teacher and the teacher has read it and it has changed things for them and that they identify quite strongly with the things in the book I'm sure there's millions of things I've not covered (laughs) I'm sure I could have done a lot more research and had a lot more families and write an epic book but I think just as a starter just to hopefully educate just a few teachers and help a few few girls along and maybe some boys too actually then it's done its job
0: yeah, no, absolutely. It's great. And I love how that within the guidebook, it's, it's bite-sized chunks of information, which makes it really easy to follow, easy to read. The fonts and everything, I think, are great. They're a good size. The spacing's great. Yeah. I've done a bit of a project last year with university um, making booklets for, for parents on AAC. And that was one of the things we looked at was using like the friendly fonts and yeah. sizes and space. And, and that was the first thing I noticed about the book when I opened the page. I thought, wow, this is really uh, reader friendly. Yeah. More people are going to be more likely to continue reading when it's like that. It's not full of jargon either, which makes yeah. it much easier to follow as well. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. One of the things that, you that com- comes up in the book is there's a bit of a focus on spotting autism and girls within the classroom yeah, I and mean, information yeah. and that's really clear as well do you think now looking back in your your previous role when you were working on, in classrooms with with students if you had that information that you have now do you think there, there's students that you would have maybe sort of saw differently
1: yeah definitely I think I talk quite often about the two boys I taught right at the beginning of my teaching career And I think, yeah, I had them. I'd worked them out. I'd got them. But I think now I look at some of the girls that I taught and think, yeah, I I missed you. (laughs) You, I think, probably could have fit this profile. And if I'd have known more then, I think I probably could have done a bit more for you. So, yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, we're always always learning all the time. Don't pretend to be any kind of authority. Having written the guidebook, having brought up my daughter, having taught lots of children now I still don't feel like I know half of it (laughs) so I think that's the thing is to remember that everyone's still learning no one's an expert really absolutely I think that's
0: what makes a good teacher as well when you know we don't claim to say you know we know everything about a particular topic it's for professionals and teachers you know it's where you're ever ever learning one of the things I'd noticed as well in the book you talk a little bit about OCD type tendencies. And girls that are autistic. And it made me think a little bit about puro Have you have you heard of puro before? It's no. a, it's a type of, of OCD where the individual has ruminating behaviors that okay. are the compulsions rather than outward compulsions. Yeah. So it really kind of it made me think about that and about how that might be quite tricky to spot, particularly in a classroom when the, the compulsions are happening <laughs> internally definitely ruminating and ruminating and ruminating yeah I think that that's something that's potentially happening in the classroom environment as well but it was Uh, just interesting to see you having it on paper and then it just yeah something really clicked
1: I think the whole internalizing nature of a lot of that a lot of these girls have is 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 the danger really that it's all going on inside and actually the teachers just aren't aware of that and sometimes the parents are not aware of that either and so that that what you perceive as being quiet and shy actually there's an awful lot going on internally which is quite damaging to those girls sometimes
0: no i absolutely I actually saw somebody it was on Facebook recently writing about how some of the issues with the the medical model of disability for diagnosing autism is that it's it's based on the perception of what other people see outwardly there's mm-hmm. nothing about what's happening internally with these yeah, individuals and I thought exactly. that was quite an interesting an interesting way of putting it yeah you, you'd also mentioned decision anxiety in the book and I think I was so glad that you mentioned <laughs> that I've not saw that anywhere else but that is such an important thing I don't think people understand how disabling that this can be for yeah for some autistic individuals <laughs>
1: I find it's probably one of my biggest frustrations (laughs) as her parent actually is that that even if I get it down to two choices which I try and do now all the time yeah we went to Blue Water for a little shopping trip because she wanted to go to the shops and she wanted to go out for lunch which was really lovely and um, so then I said well where would you like to go for lunch and she just looked terrified and I thought oh that's stupid two places two places (laughs) so I named two places this place or this place. And even then, like the default is, I don't mind. I don't mind. And I'll say to her, but you know, I want you to mind because you chose to do this. And I want you to choose something that you would like. She just can't, she can't do it. Part of it's an anxiety. Like she wants to give the perfect answer or she wants to do what I want to do because she wants to make me happy. Or like, it's so complicated. And you think for a normal 15 year old, you'd just say, well, where do you want to go to eat? And they'd say, I want this and like as a parent you wouldn't even think about it until you end up with Charles. you just can't even a tiny decision that's meant to be a nice choice even that decision is just too much just need to be I don't think you can really understand it until you're in that position <laughs> yeah
0: it's almost um paralyzing it um, is I yeah it's like a complete it's almost like yeah complete paralysis a choice yeah I was so glad to see that it was but it was included in the guidebook as well. I think for for being in the classroom, that's a sort of added caveat, you know, when maybe a teacher's saying, okay, what story would you like read today? And if you're pinpointing that on one child who has decision-making anxiety, you've then got the added pressure of your whole class watching you. Is there any tips that you would give to teachers if they were met with that sort of situation?
1: Uh, The the biggest thing that we always say to Amy's teacher is that, The minute you put your attention on her or anyone else's attention on her, you will have lost her. That's the thing that they need to remember. As soon as she feels singled out or looked at, she will not be able to form any language to do anything that you've just asked her to do. Things like if they are going to ask her to present something to the class, um, we always ask them to make sure that they prepare her as to what lesson that's going to happen, what point of the lesson that's going to happen, and allow her to prepare what she's going to write and read it off if necessary. Um, we always ask all of her new teachers at the beginning of every year, we send them a little PowerPoint about things that will help her, things that they are she, are she would find difficult for them to do. And we do ask them to only ask her to answer a question if her hand is up. And we have said to her that she has to help her teachers with that because teachers want to see that you're taking part in the lesson. And if you don't ever put your hand up, then they will assume that you're stuck and that at some point they will single you out and want to help you, and that's fine. But if you put your hands up when you're feeling confident, then you won't be singled out. It goes both ways. So we've asked the teachers not to ask her a question without her putting her hand up, but we have explained to her that she needs to t- she needs to make i don't mean the effort she needs to um push herself to put her hand up sometimes when she's feeling confident as her part of that deal so it's quite a difficult one as they grow up because they 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 are going to have to cope with things in life that they find uncomfortable to function in society sadly so we do try and encourage her to push herself out of her comfort zone sometimes so that she is better able to cope with that but it i mean it is difficult It's uh, a balancing game, isn't it? It is, yeah. And as they get older, you can reason with them, and you can you can say to them, "Look, as a teacher, if you don't ever take part in the lesson, that's quite difficult because your teacher's got their favourite subject they're presenting to you, and it makes it look like you're not really appreciating their hard work, or you're not." I'm trying to put it in a way that she understands that she needs to give her teacher some feedback too. So, yeah, just trying to encourage them to take. bit of responsibility and sometimes it's good to push yourself a little bit out of your comfort zone because maybe it won't be as bad as you think and next time it might be easier yeah
0: absolutely and it's not like you're saying you must put your hand up in every single lesson you know you've explained when you're feeling confident then give it a go
1: yeah most teachers Oh, really good about that. And uh, we, we had a parents evening once where her English teacher said one lesson, she put her hand up. <laughs> she said, I was so excited, but I had to pretend with my face that I was not surprised at all. And I made sure I I asked her what her answer was straight away so she didn't panic and change her mind. And I thought that was so lovely that the teacher had had that moment of joy that, that Amy had participated, but knew that it was best not to make any fuss about it at all and understood Amy well enough to know that that was the best way to handle it and then amy was just just really over the moon that she'd put her hand up answered a question got it right like it was a big hurdle for her so it was really oh that's brilliant and that'll probably
0: be like one of these memories that that teacher will go on to have for the rest of her career this this really brilliant hurdle that one of her students overcame in her class
1: yeah exactly and, it, and amy now has a brilliant relationship with that teacher she's got a real trust now that that lady has listened because that's a really big thing for her that that her teachers have been she's given her teachers this information she expects her teachers to have read the information and if, if they don't act on it she gets quite annoyed but i told them i told them i don't want them to do that or i told them that that doesn't help me but they did it anyway she can get quite cross because it's very black and white they did the wrong yep. thing She told them they didn't listen. So she's um, right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I do say to her, yes, but you know, she's got 29 other children. She might just have forgotten that day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, teachers, they're doing their best. (laughs) Oh,
0: absolutely. I think it's sort of half the hurdle getting them to read the information that's, that's posted as well or emailed through. So even just knowing
1: that they've read that information and they've taken it on board, I think is
0: really encouraging
1: yeah definitely we find what's really successful actually well we have we've had a few blips sometimes if a new teacher's come in or a new teacher to amy and they maybe either haven't read the powerpoint that she sent around or they haven't really taken it on board or they just don't know her very well yet and um we found what's been quite successful is that i will help amy to write an email from her to the teacher and we kind of explain what went wrong, how it made her feel, and what would be better for next time. And we always have this approach, you know, tell them what went wrong, tell them how it made you feel, and then tell them how they could do it better next time. And actually, we've never had a bad response to one of those emails. And a lot of the time we've had a really, really great response where the teacher said, I'm so sorry. I have no, I had no idea I made you feel like that. I feel really awful for that. I apologise. Like they're great, the teachers at her school. And then they've been able to move forward. So I think that's quite a positive approach because you're giving a solution rather than just writing in and complaining or whatever. Absolutely. You're explaining why that she can't handle that and giving them a way to do it better next time. So that's been quite a successful approach with her school. I don't Meant work with every school I know not all schools are always totally approachable but
0: that's brilliant and it seems like you're, you're really supporting her to learn how to advocate for herself
1: as well that's my biggest worry with these passive presentation girls is that you worry when they're teenagers if they do not really have this ability to say no or to make decisions or be decisive that they could end up getting themselves into some difficulties so that's definitely one thing that we're trying to do with her is teach her how to communicate and how to put forward how she feels and what she would like someone to do but definitely one I think we're gonna to have to keep working on as she gets older. <laughs>
0: that's it It's but it seems you're doing a really good job already even doing the guidebook you know side by side alongside Amy, yeah. and then I, I know Covid sort of got in the way but organising to to present them to the schools as well were you going to do that together
1: I would like to do it together but I'm aware that I'm probably pushing her quite far out of her comfort zone (laughs) so I was hoping she might come and chat to you today but I think she's decided she's feeling a little bit shy
0: that's That's all right also I love that you've included the positives of autism within your book and I think it's such important points that you've made, and I think we've came a long way even in the past five years in terms of awareness. But there's obviously there's still such a long way to go in terms of cele- the celebration of the difference yeah. within the autistic community. But one point that you've made is that autistics are just as emotionally caring as their neurotypical peers, and I yeah. think that's something that's massively misunderstood based on old stereotypes as well as the sort of old stereotype of autistic people don't feel empathy or they lack yeah. feelings. Have you heard of the Milton's Mountains double
1: empathy theory? Yeah, I thought that was really, that's really interesting, isn't it?
0: Yes, it really rung true. Again, I was, I was reading your book and I was so glad that you'd you know, you'd added it in. And I'm just going to kind of briefly explain just if there's anybody that listens and doesn't know what the main mountains double empathy theory is. It explains that autistics communicate better with other autistics and neurotypicals communicate better with neurotypicals. So it's not necessarily a lack of empathy or poor communication skills that the autistic person's displaying. It's just different. And yeah, they pair up better with those of their own neurotype than and the sort of mixed paired. so it was yeah really nice to to see in your book again. I'm really glad that that's been put out there for teachers to to read as well and see. I think sometimes, for example, if my wee girl hits me by accident, she knocked me in the book in the head with a book once by accident. Actually, during her autism assessment, and she just like looked like there was nothing there, and I was kind of like, ow, was that sore. And there was nothing behind her, but you know that she feels bad because afterwards it'll take a wee while, but afterwards she'll kind of say, I'm really sorry about that. I didn't mean that. Yeah. Um, but in the moment for onlookers, it would maybe look as if, oh, she's just walloped her mum in the head with a book and she doesn't even care. But it's not that she doesn't care. It's just that she doesn't show empathy the same way that a neurotypical would. So it can be misunderstood.
1: Yeah. Um, I definitely noticed at at school that Amy has two friends that she frequently goes out shopping with and things like that. And all three of them, one has a diagnosis, one doesn't. But I recognise very strongly the traits that they all share. And it's lovely. When they go out together, Amy will say to me, well... One of them doesn't like speaking to people in shops, but one of them's okay with speaking to people in shops. And one of them doesn't like getting the bus, um, but the other two, have, we're okay with getting buses. And the way they all kind of support each other's anxieties is really, really lovely. But it's just really interesting that they have found each other and they recognise something they have in common. And it is it is definitely very, very interesting. Nice. I know my husband and I quite often say you know we recognize traits in each other and ourselves and in our wider families and interesting that we've ended up together so it's that same thing isn't it we both have those aspects to our personalities and that maybe has something to do with the fact that we've been married a long time (laughs) (laughs) it's the whole thing isn't it but um yeah it's really fascinating
0: yeah absolutely and I noticed that you've quoted Alice Rowe quite often throughout the book is she somebody that you've
1: Taking information and inspiration from? She's I think just the most amazing role model she's still so young and yet she's um, just such a massive advocate for female autism I think she's just brilliant and I just every time she writes I've come across one of her quotes and I think oh yeah that really reflects Amy or I really identify with that I just think she's just spot on everything i read of hers i really think yeah i can see how that relates either to us or to other people i've spoken to i just think she's a really great spokesperson and we were talking earlier about the kind of positiveness of autism and that's one thing that alice rose great for because she's got so many skills and talents and she's got her degree and she does music and she does advocating and she has her own business and like she's just a really successful, autistic, proud, um, proud to be autistic woman. I think she's just a really fabulous role model. I think she's brilliant. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I love the quotes sort of that are dotted throughout the book. They're, they're lovely. It's a, a really nice
1: touch. Yeah, what was great about it was that I'd written the book and then was looking for um, some quotes of Alice's to add in and um, how closely matched, like quite often her quote was exactly the same as something that I'd combined from other families that had written to me. And I thought, yeah, we know we're on the right lines because we're all saying the same things. So it was a really nice validation. But um, I actually contacted Alice and said, told her about our project and sent her a copy the initial kind of proof copy before it went to print to check she was happy and um, yeah she was really happy to have all of her quotes and things included and be part of our little mission <laughs> so right. that was really nice of her oh brilliant you're doing such a great job
0: I'm actually going to get a copy of your book and send it to my sister in Australia she's a teacher over in Australia yeah in high school but I think it would be really useful her husband's actually a teacher as well he's a primary school teacher so yeah. send one over for their household i think really <laughs> yeah. well,
1: they're in new zealand as well so we're doing we're doing well down under <laughs> that's brilliant <laughs> oh,
0: thank you so much it's been so great talking to you thank you so much for taking your time today oh, really
1: it's all about spreading the word isn't it
0: absolutely thank you <laughs>